Hello and welcome to another podcast of the European Young Chemist Network, where we discuss the latest research concerning chemistry-related topics of high interest to the general public. My name is Mark Kilada, and today we will talk about the needed developments for a sustainable society and how chemistry can help to achieve this. In the fall of 2015, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a new Sustainable Development Agenda, which includes 17 Sustainable Development Goals to end poverty, protect the planet and ensure prosperity for all. If achieved, these 17 goals will fundamentally change the world for better. These 17 goals include things like no poverty, good health and well-being, zero hunger, reduce inequality, gender equality, affordable and clean energy, life below water, life on land, and partnerships to achieve the goal. But why are we asking about these goals in an interview for an EYCN podcast? It's simple. The chemical enterprise has a unique role to play in reaching these goals. Chemistry offers a broad spectrum of products and services essential to our daily lives which should be safe, sustainable and environmentally sound. Young chemists have to play a key role to look beyond the specifics and identify what kind of mindset will enable us to meet these challenges. For this, we are looking for the experience from our mentors and professors. Today, we have Professor David Cole Hamilton to help us identify this mindset for the future. After achieving his Bachelor of Science degree in Chemistry, Professor David Cole Hamilton stayed in Edinburgh where he was awarded a PhD in 1975. He then moved to Imperial College London where he began work as a postdoctoral fellow with Professor Geoffrey Wilkinson, who had been awarded the Nobel Prize only the year before. The period at Imperial College was very influential as it sparked Professor Cole Hamilton's interest in homogeneous catalysis. Then, in 1978, Professor Cole Hamilton began as a lecturer in inorganic chemistry in Liverpool and started his independent research career. There, he developed projects around photochemical water spitting, metacycle chemistry, homogeneous Fischer-Tropsch chemistry and the water gas shift reaction. Professor Cole Hamilton's work attracted a great deal of attention and his clear style of lecturing made him an in-demand conference lecturer and seminar speaker. He was also awarded with numerous prizes. In 1985, he took the vacant position of Irvine Professor of Chemistry at the University of St. Andrews, the place that was to be his professional home for the rest of his career, where he reached the status of Professor Emeritus in 2015. His main work was on the applications of organometallic chemistry and homogeneous catalysis and material science. Most recently, Professor Cole Hamilton developed chemical processes based on waste bio-oils. Typically, Professor Cole Hamilton also gave a great deal back to the community, organizing countless meetings, giving time as an advisor, and, in particular, through his work in chemical societies, such as being a member of the Council of the Royal Society of Chemistry, 
president of the Dalton Division and as the president of the European Chemical Society. Welcome everyone to all our uh, listeners to, uh, to the YCNers. Uh, we are here today with uh, Professor David Cole Hamilton. That, uh, we are going to talk uh, about the, uh, the EU uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that, uh, and how what's important on the role of chemistry to, behind it. Uh, hello, hello, Professor David Cole Hamilton. Thank you so much for, for agreeing to, to participate in this, in this podcast. Hi, Antonio. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to see you again and to be able to talk to you today. Uh, regarding this uh, this podcast, we would like just to speak to you how we could create some uh, sustainable mindsets uh, across the chemistry uh, community around Europe. Do you think that we already have it? It's certainly developing very, very quickly. I think uh, maybe when I started working in this sort of area, maybe as long as 30 years ago, it was almost a lone voice crying in the wilderness, but uh, things have changed. Things have changed enormously and they change every day. So, for example, yesterday, Joe Biden's announcement about climate change, huge, very, very important. And more and more people are coming to understand that, that, that there are problems. And of course, these goals, what they are is they're a set of 17 goals that the United Nations set to try and make the world a better place and by better I mean it's uh, there should be peace justice more equality and we should then respect the planet and the all the things that are in the planet so that's not just humans but animals and plants and everything and so it, it covers a really way of living in the world in a sustainable manner that's why they're called sustainable development goals and it's a blueprint for getting there the thing I would say, though, really very urgently is these are supposed to be implemented by 2030. That's only nine years away. And we're nowhere near reaching them at the moment. So there's a huge amount of work to be done. And yes, I think chemists are beginning to understand that. There was a major development some years ago, the, the implementation of green chemistry. So Paul Anastas and John Warner's book, Green Chemistry, has a massive effect and I think it's gone into the teaching, it's gone into a lot of the research and that's just a start. That's one aspect of where chemists can be involved in in coming towards these sustainable development goals. But in my opinion, they can actually come towards all of them. And so if you look at them, there's a role for chemistry in almost all of them. Thank you. What would you consider that uh, would be the greatest opportunities and challenges in the sustainability research in the next uh, few years? The, probably the, the greatest challenge is, in terms of the chemistry, uh, how you get a fuel for aeroplanes, which is not petrol, not petrol derived, because it's a very efficient fuel. But if you think that you burn huge amounts when you fly on a long distance flight, you're not going to be able to make that from biomass. You make some of it from biomass and there are plants trying to make jet fuel from uh, wood, for example, wood waste in Finland. They have a plant doing that. But the scale of that is not going to be enough for the enormous amount of travelling we do at the moment. So we will have to cut down on the travelling, but there has to be an alternative solution. Now, people are working on hydrogen planes. 
uh, for short distances. I mean, I know that in Scotland we have a project to do that, but one of the flights that they're going to try to power with hydrogen takes 59 seconds. It's the shortest flight in the world. The challenge there is less than for the, uh, say, going to Hawaii from here or something like that. So I think that that is one of the major challenges. The second one I would think is related to feeding the world. We currently can produce enough food for the population of the planet. It's not distributed properly, so some people have too much and some people don't have enough. But there is enough food to do that. We can only do that because of agricultural chemicals and particularly fertilizers, which increase the yield by about 50%. So what you can say is that if you didn't have those chemicals, particularly ammonia, but other ones as well, about uh, 2 billion people wouldn't be alive. On this side. We wouldn't be able to feed 2 billion people. So that's an enormous number. But when you look at that again, and you look at ammonia synthesis, you make it from nitrogen in the air, which is plentifully abundant, no problem with nitrogen, and you make it from hydrogen. At the moment, that hydrogen comes from methane, largely, by steam reforming, and then water gas shift reaction, uh, and you throw away all the carbon in the methane as carbon dioxide. So it's a huge source of carbon dioxide, and 5% of all methane used in the world is used in that single process. And 1% of all the energy consumed in the world is used in that process. So it's a huge consumer. So we've got to do something about that process to make it much more efficient. An obvious thing to do would be to make the hydrogen not from methane, but from water. For example, by electrolysis. Using electricity that comes as over-generated electricity from wind and solar power, in the night time when people aren't using it in the case of wind. Uh, if there's very bright sun, then you produce more electricity than you need. And so that overproduced electricity can be used to make the hydrogen. But there isn't enough of that at the moment and the efficiency of electrolyzers isn't good enough. So we need to work on the efficiency of electrolyzers, not just for that, but for hydrogen as a fuel as well, because of course hydrogen is a very clean fuel. You burn it, you just get water. You make it from water, you burn it. It's a sort of utopian dream but it's not as easy as it sounds, unfortunately. And then we need to do something about the chemistry of the actual process because ammonia synthesis, because of the entropy of the reaction, means you have you would like to work at uh, low temperature, but to get a decent rate, you have to work at high temperature. So is there a way you can improve the catalyst so that it will work better at low temperature? Well, Alvin Mittash, who developed the process, looked at thousands of different catalyst combinations and the best one is being used. So there may be potential there, but it's more likely that we're going to, have to do clever tricks like heating the catalyst but not the flowing stream so you can have different kinetics from the thermodynamic position that you get to. So things like that, really big, huge challenges uh, for the world. Then of course there are the, the big challenges of uh, medicine, of um, drugs to treat diseases of aging, lifestyle diseases, um, all kinds of other diseases that we have, COVID for example, they're all chemical problems that have to be solved. Massive, massive challenges there as well. And then of course there's all the pollution aspects, the plastics. There's been, of course, David Attenborough, his wonderful program, The Blue Planet, he talked about, he showed all these microplastics in, in the ocean. 
and and it's horrendous what we've been doing and so we have to have and the the European Union has of course banned single-use plastics but you know what what does that mean can it be done how what will we do instead we we've become totally dependent on plastics so we we've got huge huge challenges in terms of cleaning up the the um the earth the sea and the air and of course climate change and i've mentioned airplanes but they're not the only cause of climate change indeed this is a, a challenge that uh, it's going to to take us not a couple of years to to solve their multiple phases we thought i know that for example ammonia research has been uh, greatly uh enhanced by the European Research Council on different grants and uh, people doing a lot of interesting research on that. Uh, some of the of, of our delegates have projects on, on that. And also, of course, the, the mobility now with the uh, uh, the rise of, uh, of electric cars and everything, maybe that, that would be a, something that uh, would be a phase on, uh, on uh, changing from now the petrol or, or most gas-based uh, uh, mobility that we have, uh, and how it can impact. In, in, indeed, for example, one of your comments on uh, on the international meetings on on if we have to move or not, more or less, this has already been uh, done, partially due to due to COVID, and, and the international meetings and conference have have mostly for the last couple of years moved uh, to online meetings. And these uh, these were a big opportunity for networking and diffusion of the uh, research results. But sometimes they were criticized because of this mobility, especially on the carbon f- footprint of uh, of long distance uh, conferences. Uh, how do you see the rise of online international conferences, and how do you think that they could impact to the uh, younger generation of young chemists uh, coming coming up? Well, I think that's a really important question because, of course, uh, if you, just to take an example, the Pacific Chem meeting in Hawaii, everybody has to take a long-distance flight to go there and about 15,000 people go. I would say the average amount of carbon dioxide per person to get there and back is about four tonnes. So we're talking about 60,000 tonnes for a four-day meeting in Hawaii. And... So the question is, should we have that online? And, and I mean, what, what do we do about it? Because we can't, that's not sustainable. That's just one conference. And you think of all the conferences, you know, huge conferences in medicine, in, in every subject all over the world. Massive amounts of, of uh, carbon dioxide being used as a result of that. Until we have long distance planes which don't produce carbon dioxide, we have to look at that differently. What do we lose if we don't have conferences like that and we have them online well first of all what do we gain so yesterday as you mentioned i was at a meeting it was a a webinar on carbon normally a webinar like that would attract a maximum of 60 people 460 people registered for that and at least 250 were there at any one time so that that's good because that means it's disseminating much more widely than it would have done otherwise and for a meeting like that, it was absolutely fine. But there are other the one of the things about a meeting like Pacific M is not the lectures because a lot of people don't go to them. It's really what you say to one another over a beer or in the corridor or over a meal. The networking part is much more difficult to do online. But what I would say is the the young people, which is what you're talking about, 
are much better than that at that than we are. So possibly you can find a way to get that networking going in a conference like that or separately. It doesn't have to be in the conference. The other advantage, of course, is that you don't have to be there all the time. If you if you go to a conference because you're giving a lecture, there are some people who just give the lecture and never attend anything else, but stay for the four days and have a holiday. That's not really, I don't think actually that's legitimate or probably legal in terms of funding, but it happens. In this situation, you give your lecture, that's it. You can spend the rest of the time doing other things at your home base. So there are a lot of advantages, but, but I think the networking is the difficulty. And just to come back to electric cars a minute, you mentioned them. Very, very important. There is a huge move to change towards electric cars. And Biden, one of his first announcements as president was he would electrify all of the fleet of the US government, which is something like 600,000 cars or some huge number. And, and uh, many countries are saying they'll be all electric by um, 2030. And, and that's great. I'm absolutely in favour of that. But it has some problems associated with it. And they relate to things like lithium. We have to make sure that we get the lithium sustainably and we recycle it. At the moment, there's very little lithium being recycled. So recycling, all the circular economy is really important. So we need to recycle the lithium. And then there's this other problem. If we replace every car with an electric car, what happens to all those cars that you've had to get rid of? It's a huge number and it's a massive problem. Because at the moment, what happens, you buy a new car, somebody else buys your second-hand car. They won't be able to buy that second-hand car. And so there's a big issue there about resources and what happens to them. We, we, clearly, we have to... We already recycle motor cars, the iron in them and all that kind of thing. But we have, we're going to have to do that on a much, much bigger scale for a short period. For example, in uh, I don't know about the UK, but in Spain, for example, this uh, there is a plan. It's called the Plan Move, so that the, so that the people have the uh, the possibility of, of exchanging their their uh, old car that is older than uh, I think uh, ten years, uh, and there you you can only get the funding, the uh, public funding, to change the car and to have some reduced prices on the electric car that you are going to buy, if you. Uh, if you if you recycle your your previous car, not if you sell it, so basically that that's a, a massive uh, I think uh, help to, and an incentive for people to to do not uh, secondhand sell your your car, but to to completely eliminate it from uh, circulation. But because at the end uh, that's what uh, what you were mentioning that uh, you, you need to, to to reduce the amount of uh, of petrol based cars in uh, in, the, in the fleet. If you do that, do they have the capacity to do that recycling? Yeah, yeah. No, basically that that was the 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 goal. And uh, but essentially that uh, the plan to move from electric, for example, in Spain, have shifted not to twenty thirty but to twenty forty and beyond. So uh, they said that uh, Spain should be carbon neutral by twenty fifteen, and uh, no diesel car can be sold uh, beyond uh, twenty forty. I think. So that that's the uh, general plan, and I think that in general, what uh, Europe is asking, and hopefully the plan move along faster because we'll be behind a little bit on on that. But uh, yeah, something that uh, needs to be uh, a little bit work in progress.
And uh, I also wanted to, to talk to you about, I mean, uh, we, we are talking about uh, mobility and, and all that stuff, but uh, one uh, one question that's really uh, on my mind uh, now is, uh, for example, also with, uh, with uh, food. I was uh, watching a documentary uh, yesterday uh, based on the uh, meat, for example. I don't know if you... Uh, or if the UK is uh, has any regulation with uh, with meat production and artificial meat, that there's already uh, a little bit uh, work on on that. But the amount of resources that uh, that is, is needed to to produce meat uh, at the moment, it's also quite huge. And uh, there is all this movement to to kind of plant-based uh, food and uh, and all that stuff. Uh, it is uh, also a little bit of a challenge, and it's also in, uh, in alignment with the EU sustainability goals. What do you think that it's uh, going to be in the next few years? Are we going to to eat uh, uh, meat uh, grown uh, on the lab? Uh, we're going to have to cut down the amount of meat we eat. I can say that because I'm a vegetarian anyway, so it's okay. But um, no, it, it's. Uh, it's a huge problem, and it, and it's not. It, it's really partly because mainly because cows are ruminants. They produce a lot of methane, and the methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So yeah, I mean, what, what I suppose the way it will work is people will gradually cut down. And um, I'm involved in a, in a group here in St Andrews where we're trying to persuade people to eat less meat. You know, maybe say eat beef one less portion of beef a week or something like that because beef is the worst and and sheep um lamb is is bad and, and so on ruminants but um you know it, it it's a we're asking people to change their lifestyle and a lot of people don't want to do that and they don't feel they at the moment they don't really feel they have a any incentive to do it because it's not going to affect them and so we there's a huge change in the mindset of people which is happening now i think there's a lot of publicity about obviously the paris accord but also other things and we have a big uh, climate change summit here in glasgow in in uh, november and that's certainly in this area concentrating people's minds to think about what we should do and and there are a lot of targets and gradually, and I think there was an announcement just a couple of days ago from the Westminster government about eating meat and how we should cut down on it. But I don't think it's something you can do immediately because, I mean, it's a very inefficient way of using land because what happens is because they eat the grass and that gets processed and then we eat the, um, eat the cows. But if you say, all right, we're not having cows on that grass, well, we're not going to eat the grass. We've got to provide the protein somehow, and particularly in Britain, it's not so easy to grow many of these protein, proteinaceous plants. And even dairy food, which I do eat, is is better than meat because, of course, you get a lot more milk from one cow than you get meat from a cow. But even so, it, it does produce undoubtedly a lot of methane as well, and, and so we have to cut that down. And so we are talking about plant-grown um, protein. Soya is of course the main one that people are using and that's what they're using for these artificial meats and that's fine um, but of course they're clearing the rainforest in places like uh, 
Brazil so that they can farm more cows or grow soya and the soya actually they grow there is largely for cattle feed well we could use that soya but it's genetic largely genetically modified and at the moment you're not allowed to have genetically modified um, crops in in Europe so there's a big there's a whole it's, it's not just a simple thing saying stop eating meat it's the replacement for it as well that we have to take into account and work out how to do so it's, it's how you do sustainability sustainably that's the thing that's uh, that's a really a good point so I I, I will also like to uh, more or less uh, try to to conclude on uh, uh, a little bit of a conclusion on this uh, conversation that we are having and it's to uh, to ask you if uh, if you how do you think that the European chemistry community is equipped to meet all, a little bit of all the challenges that we have been talking about uh, you think that uh, we can meet them and, and uh, how you see how do you think that the young chemists can contribute to them now certainly the European community is highly sensitized to this and they're putting a large amount of money in the Green Deal and in a Horizon 30 in the um, safe and sustainable by design projects particularly uh, into developing new ways of making chemicals for example so we make most of our chemicals from oil we can't do that anymore and uh, we have to think about how we're going to make them and so uh, a lot of that's going to have to come from waste because you can't you can't just simply say I'm going to grow a plant here which I'm going to turn into chemicals because that says I can't grow food there so there's this problem of land for food or for chemicals or for or for fuel or whatever it is and and so we have to have ways of doing that and the European community is very sensitive to that and they're, they're trying to work on how you do it so waste is going to be very important taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is going to be very very important now that's difficult because although it's too much for global warming it's only 400 parts per million it's still very very low so taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is difficult and of course photosynthesis does that but it does it rather slowly we need to be able to take it out and use it and probably in the end my comment earlier on about jet fuel is we'll have to do it by taking carbon, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere reacting with hydrogen from photolysis of water to make a jet fuel which is similar to the one they have at the moment it burns and goes into the atmosphere we take it out of the atmosphere again that's what we're going to have to do but that's that's difficult uh, you can do it from point sources so if you have a power station that's producing carbon dioxide then you can do it but anyway to come back to your question sorry I diverted I do think the European community is very sensitized to this I think um, lots of people working in companies are sensitized to it lots of people working in um, industry and in sorry in, in universities are sensitized to it and there are some good very excellent projects coming forward we need to do more but I think we, we can do it, whether we can do it in the time, I and mean, that's really the challenge, to do it quickly enough. But if you think about some of the things that have happened, we had a huge problem with acid rain in Europe, particularly in Sweden, which was largely responsible, the UK was responsible for that, and in Eastern Europe. We've largely got rid of that problem, and that's because we don't put sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere from power stations anymore. So that's good. We had a hole in the ozone there. That's repairing because we got rid of CFCs. 
So concerted action can make a difference. I think it's very, very important to realize that. And so with climate change, we can make a difference and we'll have to do it. And then the, the last example I would give is people, chemical industry used to be terribly bad at polluting it, just stuff, stuff into rivers and into the sea and everything. And then legislation came in to say, you can't do that anymore. And they had to stop doing it and they've stopped doing it. And now the chemical industry is really a very clean industry. If you go around a chemical plant, it's, it's clean and well done. So, and sometimes it's much cheaper to do the sustainable method as well. So the economics can stack up. Of course, if you tax the, the bad things, that helps as well. Thank you so much. I think that uh, there has been a great uh, positive uh, ending for, the, for our conversation. And I hope that uh, our listener will, will uh, appreciate everything. Thank you very much, Antonio. And if anybody wants to be in contact with me, perhaps you could give them my email address. And can... Hey there again, it's Mark Kalala. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and stay tuned for our next edition of the podcast of the European Young Chemist Network. Thank you. Goodbye.